astroparticle physicists gather in South Dakota to ponder the mysteries of the universe. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, June 16th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we meet leading researchers exploring the frontiers of astrophysics and data analysis. We also meet Grammy-nominated musician and artist Pierce Freelon. He's been in residency this week with the Levitt. We'll talk about big feelings for little kids and we'll explore stereotypes for black parents. We highlight South Dakota Juneteenth celebrations later in the hour. But first, more on that historic U.S. Supreme Court decision regarding the Indian Child Welfare Act. We're broadcasting live today from SDPP's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The U.S. Supreme Court has upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA. The opinion was issued on Thursday, and it included dissents from Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. Justice Neil Gorsuch also laid out in his concurrence what amounts to a sharp rebuttal of those dissenting opinions and a history lesson regarding America's treatment of indigenous people. We'll have more on legal reasoning and significance in a moment, but first we welcome South Dakota State Representative Paree Poirier. She was part of legislative efforts to enact state protections for Native American children. This past session, Representative Poirier is with me in the Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio in our Rapid City space. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Lori. It's an honor. This is a historic decision, and much uh, fretting and worrying was uh, was going on for fear that ICWA would be overturned or diminished somehow in its effectiveness. Help us understand why. ICWA went far beyond um, far beyond the safety of children. This case was about a wrong assertion that ICWA was race-based. This is a piece of legislation that has its founding upon tribal sovereignty, um, asserting the rights, the inherent rights, that tribal nations have the right to govern their citizens. Um, It is a long-standing misconception that Native Americans are just another race, just another check in a box. We have sovereign status. We have political jurisdiction. We have a political status um, that uh, is in since time immemorial. Uh, 400 years of treaties um, stand on those grounds. Um, Justice Gorsuch's opinion, or his concurrence, I should say, is gaining a lot of attention for asserting what you just said. And what does that mean to you to have that in, you know, in the record, as it were, in this Supreme Court decision. Do you, does that give you optimism for days ahead? Everyone in Indian country was on um, shaky ground when we knew that this Supreme Court decision was up there. No one could tell, no one could estimate or predict uh, which way it would go. Um, it would have been a domino effect and it was an attack on tribal sovereignty and, and the rights of indigenous people in the United States. Um, we are our sovereign nations, and, and that's 
what we have to go on. And what this means to me is that we have been reaffirmed. We do not need re- you know, to be reaffirmed by outside entities, but it goes to show that um, truth matters still mm-hmm. um, in the United States and, and South Dakota. And that truth is we are sovereign nations. We have treaties. And even according to the U.S. Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land. And that um, in an era where everything is questioned and, and some people probably don't know what the truth is because there's so many sh- areas of gray, this was an affirmation that, you know, truth does matter. Pri, tell me a little bit about this last uh, last legislative session and some of the state protections you wanted to enact. They weren't passed. Give us a little bit of background on that, and then let's talk about what might happen next session. The state of South Dakota, um, if you if you talk to the, the state DSS, they will tell you that um, they do abide by ICWA laws. Um, but if you talk to practitioners, if you talk to, if you read about decisions and fed, federal uh, judge decisions, state decisions, if you talk to the people where this is mattering the most um, in the weeds, you get in the weeds to it. Mm-hmm. There are questions regarding the application, the implementation, and their interpretation of ICWA. You have a high rate, a disproportionate rate of, of Indian children being taken from their homes. Why? And, and that's what our pieces of legislation um, in PEER was, was meant to have start a conversation, look at it, bring people to the table, what are the root causes, is it a misinterpretation? Is it a lack of understanding? Um, and is there some things that are reinterpreted as abuse when they are not? I, I by no means are saying that there should be zero um, abuse cases, but I'm saying that the disproportionate rates are alarming. They have been alarming for 30 plus years. Um, and this needs to be addressed. We have to make it stop and we have to do better by our children, native children, our South Dakota children. Um, they are valued and oftentimes they are invisible when it comes to policy decisions. Hmm. Will you bring legislation next session? Do you think uh, there's another now that this is because part of the uh, argument against your legislation was that this case was before the Supreme Court and uh, some people said we don't want to pass anything that might be unconstitutional if ICWA is gutted, essentially. Well, that didn't happen. So will you come at it again? Now that this is on the radar and we have the attention of everyone on both sides, we absolutely have to come together and say, what is doable? What are things that we could agree on? And what things will make a better future for our children? Um, South Dakota State Representative Puri Purrier, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. going to keep this conversation going. We have in the studio here in Sioux Falls, Stephanie Amiat. She is legal director of the ACLU of North Dakota, South Dakota, 
and Wyoming. Welcome back to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the ACLU's work on this case specifically. Well, the ACLU has a very long history of um, advancing indigenous justice throughout the U.S., including in South Dakota. So we felt it was incredibly important to file an amicus brief with the Supreme Court, uh, focusing primarily on the equal protection um, uh, challenge that was raised by the Burkines. Yeah. Um, You know, I've had a listener before email me and say, make sure you mention people's tribal affiliations. So we should go back and say, Representative Purrier is part of the Oglala Lakota tribe, and as is my current guest, Stephanie, an enrolled member of the Oglala Lakota Nation. Um, The history that Puri was getting at there, I mean, she mentioned 30 years, but in this decision, and you've worked with ICWA for more than 20 years in private practice before your work with ACLU, help people who are new to this conversation, as shocking as that might be, get their mind around the tens of thousands of Native children who were violently ripped away from families as part of a plan to to rid the continent of any kind of Native influence. This isn't a small conversation. This is a large, historic, systemic conversation we're having. Right. It is. You know, it stretches really far back into the very fabric of the United States. And the United States government had implemented uh, a policy of um, assimilation. And that um, was most starkly seen, uh, directed at children through the federal Indian boarding school programs. And, you know, through that program, the United States government basically sanctioned Um, the forced removal of indigenous children from their families, from their tribal communities, and put them in very um, poorly run, uh, I consider them to be shams of a school. Um, There, the children were forced to do what um, is slave labor for, um, basically, they were rented out to neighboring farmers very little uh, part of their day was dedicated to actual education. And they were really, you know, punished for expressing any level of indigeneity. Um, They were punished um, for speaking their native languages. They literally could not be who they were. And that's the history in the United States. Um, Our government has repeatedly sanctioned maltreatment, mistreatment of indigenous children in an effort to assimilate them. But we now know through the boarding school report that it didn't work and it was very, very harmful and detrimental generation after generation, which is still being lived out in indigenous communities. So 45 years ago, the Indian Child Welfare Act is a response to congressional hearings that reveal um, uh, Native American children still being ripped from homes often by force, and uh, South Dakota Senator, U.S. Senator Jim Abrask, who brings this bill forward. So the significance for you of this Supreme Court decision, uh, tell me a little bit, when you heard that the opinion had been released, what your response was, what was your emotional response? Absolute joy. And we were celebrating within the ACLU, within our chapter, It was amazing, and on a personal level, you know, I felt relief because there was some serious concern about what the court would do to ICWA. Yeah, 
what happens next. In some ways, nothing has changed, but as, as I'm reading through the opinion, um, through my you know, not legal lens, it feels significant to me with how much information is in there about this history and the importance of ICWA. Right. So I think what one important aspect to keep in mind about all of the public attention to this uh, um, case as it has been pending is that people have really become aware of what the history of assimilation has been as it relates particularly to children within the United States. Like um, Representative Poirier has mentioned, we have a, an epidemic of invisibility within the United States around indigenous issues. And people don't understand the culture. People have um, formulated harmful um, biases and stereotypes that simply aren't true. And that has filtered into the, I think, child welfare system as well. Yeah. Let's close with this uh, concept that, that she mentioned about the political standing that was what was at stake here. This is not a racial group. This is not a racial um, protection law. This is a political class. Help us understand that a little bit more. Exactly. Um, the um, Constitution, you know, recognizes that indigenous tribes within the United States are political sovereignties. They have nation-to-nation -nation relationships with the United States agencies and the United States government. They are protected under our Constitution and under several federal laws. And they do have that inherent, um, not only legal right, but also um, they do have, as their independent nation status, the right to govern the way that they raise children, the way that um, they operate their communities, the way that they um, operate just as an independent nation. So ICWA really does stand for the proposition that uh, indigenous tribes are recognized as independent political sovereigns, and they're guaranteed that right. A very interesting story. We'll have more coverage on this next week. Stephanie Amiat is legal director of the ACLU of South Dakota, as well as North Dakota and Wyoming. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A group of astroparticle physicists and physics students have gathered at South Dakota Mines this summer for the third annual Ice Cube EPSCORE Initiative Underground Undergraduate Summer Program. The program brings together top researchers from around the nation and 20 highly motivated students from seven EPSCORE jurisdictions who are working on the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory at the South Pole and assisting in the preparation for Ice Cube Generation 2 or Gen 2 experiment. Let's invite some of those folks into the conversation now. Professor Catherine Rawlings from the University of Alaska Anchorage is with us from our Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. Professor Rawlings, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in Rapid City. And we have Professor Don Williams from the University of Alabama on the phone. Professor Williams, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. Professor Rawlings, uh, get us started here and uh, pretend you're on the airplane coming to South Dakota and someone says, what are you coming for? 
<laughs> How do you explain your work to a layperson? What is this uh, gathering all about? Well, I usually start by saying I study subatomic particles from outer space. Nice. Uh, there are a lot of different kinds of subatomic particles flying around space that uh, encounter the Earth, and we build detectors to detect them, such as cosmic rays and neutrinos. Uh, and that was what Ice Cube was designed to do. Uh, so my personal interest is cosmic rays. We are being uh, rained down upon by these particles from the sky all the time. And uh, we're trying to find out where they came from, whether they're light or heavy, what energies they have, and uh, other properties of these particles. So tell me a little bit about the facility, Catherine, if you will, at the South Pole. So the experiment at the South Pole is composed of a bunch of light sensors. Uh, each one is about the size of a basketball, and they're buried uh, about a mile and a half deep into the Antarctic ice shelf. Their purpose is to look for little flashes of light given off by uh, the rare occasions when a interesting subatomic particle like a neutrino, if it happens to collide with a molecule in the ice, it gives off a little flash of light. And so all of these sensors uh, buried in the ice are looking for flashes. All of their connecting cables lead to a bunch of central computers uh, at the South Pole that interpret the data, and uh, we try to sift out, classify all of these different particles that are streaming through the Antarctic Plateau. Oh, that's fascinating stuff. Professor Williams, tell us a little bit about your specialty, and let's bring some of this idea of, of um, calibration into the conversation, please. So the ice cube uh, it, it is a telescope. We're looking for particles uh, from, from outer space, as uh, Catherine said. And uh, the telescope uh, is looking for particles which are uh, very uh, hard to detect because they're so rare. And therefore, we need a very large uh, volume uh, to detect them. Just like in astronomy, you always build bigger telescopes in order to detect fainter objects. Uh, Ice Cube is built. Uh, very large, a cubic kilometer in size, uh, in order to detect these very rare particles. As a result, um, when we look at these particles, they're actually um, traveling through uh, you know, many meters or even kilometer of ice uh, in which the detector is embedded. This is a natural ice in Antarctica uh, at the South Polar Ice Cap. And a major part of uh, calibration is actually determining the properties of that ice and how it affects light that travels through it. Does that property of the ice change? I mean, is that, is that a daily work, ongoing work? Does it change over time? Help me get my mind around that. It does not, it does not change over time, um, but what the work involves is actually trying to take more and more detailed measurements to get okay. a better sense of how the ice affects light that travels through it. The ice at the South Pole is actually the most optically transparent natural solid that we know of anywhere on Earth. Huh. And uh, nevertheless, um, because we're doing very delicate precision work trying to detect these you know, very uh, rare particles, um, even small changes in the, uh, in, in the transparency of the ice, small deviations from perfect transparency can affect our data. And so it's not a matter of it changing every day, but rather a matter of trying to understand in more and more detail how the uh, properties of the ice affect uh, light that travels through it. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, Professor Rawlings, I think you're the person to ask this question. Maybe it's either one of you or both of you, but help me understand sort of the data analysis and, and looking at that data and making sure that it is correct. How does that factor into the challenges of this experiment? Well, every time, <clears throat> every time a light sensor sees a flash of light, it tells us when it saw that flash and how big of a flash it was. And uh, so part of calibrating the detector is translating those raw numbers into something uh, that can be interpreted as the passage of a particle. Uh, we, we try to figure out where the particle came from, what direction it was traveling. Uh, and in order to do that, we need to know uh, the magnitude and the timing of all of those little flashes of light. Uh, so that's part of the calibration challenge um, that Dr. Williams was talking about. Yeah. In order to really measure all of that, you need to know how the flash of light propagated through the ice uh, with all of its, its idiosyncratic dust layers and natural properties um, of, of a, a gigantic glacier. Huh. Okay, so can you present that data in a way that I could see or hear or would I be reading it? Like, how do you take the things that you can't see but you're measuring and then present it in a way that makes sense to the world? Does that question make sense well, at all? Yeah. Okay. So imagine <laughs> you were searching <laughs> Imagine you were searching for boats on the ocean. Okay. Uh, and the only way you could do it was by putting buoys sprinkling them all over the water in order to catch the wake left behind by the passage of the boats. So you don't detect the boats themselves, but you monitor say hundreds or thousands of buoys and watch for them to bob up and down as a boat passes by. Uh, so you can imagine the, a boat traveling through this water. Uh, certain buoys will get hit by the wake early, and then others, and then others get, will get hit later. And by looking at which buoys bob up and down when, you can um, interpret where the boat came from, what direction it was traveling as it moved through the medium uh, to set off those sensors. So the way we usually do this is with a, a little computer animation, um, not so good for radio, but <laughs> <laughs> illustrative visually, yeah, uh, that shows the timing of all of these hits of light from early on one side of the detector to later in time on the other side of the detector and uh, tracking the particles that way. So fascinating. Professor Williams, in our last 30 seconds or so, what is exciting you from this research that you really, you know, gets you up in the morning and makes you want to go to work? <laughs> well, this is a, a new frontier in astronomy. Um, traditionally, astronomy has always been done with, with you know, visible light and then other uh, types of uh, electromagnetic light, such as radio waves or gamma rays. And in the last uh, several years, we've got really exciting new messengers uh, from these very distant objects, including uh, neutrinos and also gravitational waves um, with the uh, LIGO and Virgo and uh, Cadre experiments. Yeah. And these are giving us new windows on the universe, new ways of looking at these very distant objects. Uh, so this is uh, extremely exciting. Oh. Um, Professor Rawlings, any final thoughts on the future of this work? Oh, just 
that it is very exciting work. Yeah. Um, Ice Cube is the largest detector of its kind in the world, and we're hoping to make it even larger in the future. Uh, it's fun to be part of such a large international collaborative project, yeah. um, working with scientists from all over the world, uh, and having gatherings uh, like the one here in South Dakota and getting to interact um, with my closest colleagues here. Um, it's, it's a tremendous privilege, um, as it is to be on this uh, show. Thank you for, for having us. Uh, and inviting us to talk about uh, our experiment here. Well, it has been a big brain day for me as I transitioned from uh, legal wranglings to scientific knowledge. So Professor Rawlings and uh, Professor Williams, you were very patient, and thank you for helping us understand it all. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. I want to tell you a little bit about Pierce Freelon. He is a Grammy-nominated music artist. He's a children's author. He's an educator and a beat maker, and he has been all over Sioux Falls this week as part of a residency with The Levitt. I'll share some details about his performances this weekend in just a moment. But first, Pierce Freelon stopped by the SDPB studios yesterday. We talked about everything from Kobe Bryant to grief, to stereotypes about black men as tender parents. Pierce Freeland, welcome to the In the Moment studios here in Sioux Falls. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for having me. I love Sioux Falls so far, and this studio is awesome. And you have met some of our kids, I, right? I You're already reading stories to them and working with them. Tell me a little bit about what you've been up to this week ahead of your performance this weekend at the Levitt. Sure. Uh, well, I was at Ace Academy. Not only were we reading storybooks together, but we were also making beats. Nice. Um, so if you could imagine a room full of, you know, elementary, preschool age kids on like an electronic drum machine, you know, making boom, ching, boom, boom, ching, making their own little beats and then rapping about things that they care about. Yeah. This one kid's like, um, I'm on a bicycle on the sidewalk. I'm on a bicycle on the sidewalk. Just super cute. Another girl wrote a song about her favorite food, potatoes. Oh, nice. It was so cute. <laughs> so uh, the kids of Sioux Falls are cool with me. They were amazing. Um, I was at the YMCA yesterday. We did a summer camp at Augie. Like, we've just been all over the place with Levitt. And um, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know the community through your kids. Yeah, that's what Levitt is all about. It's not just the stage. It's not just the performance. It is this deep connection with community and music and inviting people to participate in it. I'm so glad. And your work, um, you do so much. Okay, let's just get to the fact that we're not going to get to everything that Pierce Freelon <laughs> is. But I have just a passion for children's music and mm. children's literature. And when my daughter, she's all grown up now, but when she was little, it was those children's CDs. I felt like I was reparenting myself mm. in some ways, and I was also learning how to be a parent mm. because a song would come up about kindness or a mm -hmm. song would come up about, um, you know, riding your bicycle. Mm -hmm. And it just helped me figure out what she was thinking yeah. at the same time. Why is why is music that's family-friendly... Um, not vapid music, but really smart, layered, intelligent music for kids. Why is that important to you? Well, it's important to me as a parent. Like you, I've, yeah. I've raised little ones who are getting older. My son just graduated middle school, which oh, is wow. mind-boggling. Oh. It's like, ugh. 
high schooler. Uh, Here it and comes. Ev- everybody <laughs> says it goes fast, and but it's so true. Um, mm. But you know, raising little kids, they're sponges. They absorb mm. everything. And uh, it was it wasn't until I became a parent that I started listening critically to the music that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in the '90s, so there was like a lot of hip hop that I was listening to. That you know, I like the beat, I like the lyrics, I'm rapping along. Now all of a sudden, I'm a parent. I've got two kids on the back. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> let me turn the volume down on that particular uh, song, yeah. you know. And I'm like, well, what can I play that is a reflection of my culture that has the same feel that makes you want to, you know, groove in your seat while you're driving them to the grocery store, you know? But but has lyrics that are appropriate and ideas and topics that are relevant to their lives. And I didn't find a lot, not a lot in the hip-hop space, not a yeah, lot right. from <clears throat> from the perspective of a father. There's a lot of uh, children's musicians who are women um, and children's picture book authors uh, that are women. And then, <clears throat> you know, there's this weird paradox where, like, you know, people are surprised to see, like, uh, fathers as primary caregivers and as nurturers. Um, I just remember going to the park and people would be like, oh, you're such a great dad. Look at you with your little kitty. <laughs> you know, your kid's in a backpack and you're pushing the stroller. Aren't you just a great dad? I'm like, uh, I'm just, this is kind of the bare minimum, actually. You know, yeah. we're just out and about. Just like nobody's giving my wife props when, <laughs> when she's like doing basic mom stuff. But there's, the, I think it's because there's a dearth of, we don't see it often yeah. in the media. So for me, as a children's music artist, I wanted to show fatherhood and vulnerability through fatherhood, playfulness, uh, caregiving, as a dad, as a black father, you know, um, particularly with black masculinity and the stereotypes associated with it, kind of nurturing, loving, goofball isn't really in the equation yeah. as much as it should be. Yeah. So that's what um, I just noticed when I started writing and releasing songs that like, wow, there's really nothing out here that's like this. Did that mean there was a, an opening for you that you were able to step into or did you have to convince other people, the gatekeepers, that there was a need that needed to be f- filled? Well, you know, I'm lucky. I come from a creative and dare I say audacious family. I didn't ask anyone for permission. I showed up <laughs> in my fullness unapologetically mm. and you know, and it was embraced. Um, and I think that I, I, I released my first children's music album in 2020. The timing was really interesting. I think there was a moment for dads that year for a couple of reasons. Mm. There was a, a short film called Hair Love, which is also yep. a book uh, by Matthew A. Cherry, uh, who's the Oscar the, winner. Right? Oscar yeah. winner, yeah, yeah, Oscar winner that year. And that was a story about a, a black father, you know, and not, you know, not like, I don't know, like, I grew up with, um, you know, shows like The Cosby Show and, you know, Family Matters, and they had these older black fathers who were physicians. And, you know, the this guy in Hair Love was like a young dad with locks, like me. He had tattoos on his arms. I related to this dude. And yeah. here he is, like, trying to figure out his daughter's hair. And it was an Oscar winner, and I felt seen, you know, for the first yeah. time. I'd never seen a dad as a primary giver in a Disney-type style uh, animation before, um, you know, mom nowhere to be found until the end of the until the end of the episode, and also that year, this was 2020. That was the year Kobe Bryant tragically passed away yeah. in the helicopter accident yeah. uh, with his daughter, 
And I remember seeing, you know, throughout the media, there was like tons of images of Kobe nurturing his daughter, showing her basketball, you know, reading her books and, and being caring. And for the previous, you know, 20 years, we saw a lot of Kobe dunking, you know, mm -hmm. being very masculine and Mamba mentality. But because of the nature of this particular tragedy, uh, the media was all of a sudden flooded with this fatherhood, this intimate, close, soft, yeah. black masculinity. And I was like, wow, I, I didn't, it's not that that version of him didn't exist. It's just that the media isn't as interested in telling that story. Yeah. Um, so that happened to be the year that I released DAD. And I feel like in the zeitgeist, there was a yearning for, you know, this was also the summer of George Floyd. There was a yearning for black men to be seen as whole human beings that include that softness mm. um, that comes with being a parent. Um, at least that's how I was parented and how my dad and his dad and his dad, you know, they were, they were loving. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, we just, I didn't see that as much in the media. And I felt like the timing of the album, my first album really resonated with, uh, you know, a moment in yeah. American pop culture. Yeah. So here we are just ahead of Father's Day, and I'm sure some people are listening and thinking about their complicated relationships with their father. But you and I have both lost our fathers. Mm -hmm. And so for us, Father's Day has a different kind of celebratory nature, but mm -hmm. also this this pairing with grief. And yeah. your mother, Nina Freelon, has a, a just profound podcast called Great Grief, which mm -hmm. I would highly recommend to anybody. Um, where she has conversations with grief that I sit down and I'm like, yeah, no, I haven't done that yet. Like, mm. oh, yep, Nina, I needed to hear that because that <laughs> is what I've been avoiding, you know, for these few years. Um, as you approach your own fatherhood and you approach your own father, who was a well-known architect, who was a giant in his community, mm -hmm. who died of ALS, you watched him lose his voice. Mm -hmm. You walked through that anticipatory grief with him, like, how do you approach Father's Day now from where you stand? Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned my mom's podcast, you know, the, the lessons that she offered, that she learned through her grieving are also lessons that, that were a part of our family and the culture of how we moved through my yeah. dad's from diagnosis, you know, to death and afterwards. And I, I feel, honestly, genuine enthusiasm about Father's Day. I feel his presence daily. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't, it doesn't evoke a sense of like, uh, you know, I think of grief as love. It is a version of love. In fact, if you don't feel grief when someone dies, <laughs> that's because the relationship wasn't close. If you were super close then the grief is actually an expression. It's a part of love. The depth and the width of your relationship is reflected in the, in the feeling of loss when they're gone. So that is sitting with it, sitting with the loss, looking at it, dancing with it, engaging with it, and recognizing it as love fills my heart with gratitude. Mm. You know, And that's, that's what I feel. I'm looking forward to being with my dad on Father's Day. <laughs> um, you know, energetically, I know 
uh, he's with me in spirit. I feel his energy. When I look in the mirror, when I uh, feel myself uh, pulling the, some of the phrases that used to annoy me as a kid, and I'm using those same <laughs> phrases on my kids, put down the ding dong remote. He would say ding dong. <laughs> ding that dong. was like his expletive replacer. And the other day I was, at the ki- I was in the kitchen with the kids and I told my son to put down the ding dong something. And I was like, oh, dad. Here you are. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Nice to see you, dad. Way to, way to show up in, uh, you know, in a tense moment to bring some levity and remind me that you'll always be with me. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that's because I love him and I still love him. And I am grateful for everything that he gave me. So I'm looking forward to Father's Day. When you, when you make music for children, you want to weave in, I've heard you say, an attitude of gratitude, mm-hmm. boundaries. Yep. No is a love word. No is I a love word. I have not heard that before. Ooh. That's nice stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't know, some of that's new to me. I want to say some of it's Fred Rogers. Um, some of it's just, you know, being human. But some of it is a brand new. Some mm. of it feels very contemporary to me. Um what is important in children's music without being pedantic or heavy-handed to help kids feel empowered to say no, you know, to have bodily autonomy, to yeah. have, to know their own thoughts, to yeah. create something and say that is, that is my song about a bicycle and therefore it can be in the world. Mm-hmm. How, how do you, how do you help kids become audacious yeah. like you and your family are? Well, you know, it's interesting. So in my time here in Sioux Falls, Ace Academy was the first, and that was Littles, yeah. right? Like, small kids. Yeah. And then uh, we went to a middle school uh, where there was a summer camp, and those kids were, you know, 12, 11, 10, mm-hmm. older. And the kids at Ace, very audacious, fearless. They popped up. They made beats. They grabbed the mic. They did lyrics. They laughed, had a ball. By the time we got with the middle schoolers, there was a lot more trepidation. There was a lot more self-consciousness and reluctance to engage. Yeah. So I don't think our job as parents is to teach kids to be audacious. They're, they are that way by their nature. Yeah. The key is to nurture it. It's to support it. It's to allow them to feel so loved that they're not afraid to be themselves, especially in front of their peers, mm-hmm. which becomes harder the older they get as they become more self-aware, um, you know, how do I really feel comfortable in my own skin? And my parents did a great job of that. I think the number one key is the same thing as the grief. It's love. If you love up on your kids and they feel confident in themselves, then they will feel um, bold enough to be themselves uh, just like that, that intrinsic boldness of the, of the younger mm-hmm. kids. These are kids who probably know who George Floyd is. These mm. are kids who are probably never going to forget COVID mm-hmm. and how it impacted their lives. Um, when we talk about loss or big emotions for kids, I mean, losing a favorite toy, losing mm-hmm. a friend mm-hmm. who moved away, yeah. um, losing the daylight when it's time to go to bed. Right. These can feel huge to them. Yeah. How in your music do you help kids deal with the big 
stuff. Yeah. So uh, I have a song, not on my album. This is my friend uh, uh, Mills Trill's album. We have a song called Let Me Have My Feelings. <laughs> and I like that. Ooh, it's a good one. And, you know, and my daughter Stella, I will say she taught me this. Um, you know, Stella is a lot more emotive than I am. And my inclination when there is a meltdown is like, get it together. We're not going to have a meltdown in the middle of this grocery store. And she's just like... I can't control <laughs> when these big feelings are going right. to hit me. Like you need to, you need to be here with me. Like yeah. you're either with me or against me. <laughs> That's what the feelings <laughs> are telling. And I had to learn over time that this is how she's asking to be cared for. Mm. So interestingly enough, uh, the other day uh, she was having a meltdown, a whole meltdown. She and my wife were going at it. And I said, and I had a moment of like, oh, let me get in and fix this. And I had to pump the brakes for a second. I said, oh, yeah. wait, nope, tried that. Let me actually just be with her in her feelings. Mm. So I sat down on the couch. I put my arm around her. She wept into my, you know, <laughs> shoulder. And, you know, I was just kind of humming and rocking, you know, and, and she let it out as I was rubbing her back. And she was venting and I let her vent. And I said, hey. You want to play some ping pong? <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I serve first? I said, you can serve first. Let's go upstairs and play ping pong. We went up, we played ping pong. You know, 30 minutes later, she had a poofy yeah. face, but she was like, she had, yeah. was able to re-regulate. And then the next day, we talked about, you know, we did. I did the parenting. I didn't just leave the inappropriate aspects of her behavior, some of the things she was saying, we're a little out of pocket. I had to address it. But, you know, if you try to address that kind of thing in the moment, they're not going to hear you. They're in their feelings at that moment. At least she wouldn't have. Right. So it's even as a from a parenting tool, it is more effective to attempt to reach them when their, you know, blood pressure is lower, when the adrenaline is out of their blood, when they've when they're able to breathe, you know then they can actually hear what you have to say and can engage you on the things that, that they need to learn. Um, but in that moment, yeah, let me have my feelings. The song rings in my ear now when I think about um, parenting her in particular. Okay, there is much more to this conversation, including our celebratory riff on our mutual love of LeVar Burton. To hear that, I invite you to download the In The Moment podcast and you can also find it on our website this afternoon at sdpb.org slash news. All right, here are the details. SDPB is streaming performances at the Levitt Shell in Sioux Falls. Pierce Freelon performs Saturday, June 17th. That's at 1030 Central Time. It's a family-friendly show. His most recent picture book is called Daddy and Me, Side by Side. His most recent album is called Ancestars. That is a collaboration with his mother, Grammy-nominated Nina Freelon. Now, Nina performs tonight. That kicks off at 7 p.m. local time at the Levitt. Her podcast, once again, is called Great Grief, and her most recent album is called Time Traveler. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Juneteenth became a federal holiday in 2021 as a celebration of America's second Independence Day. 
on June 19, 1865, around 2,000 Union troops marched into Galveston Bay, Texas. They brought with them the announcement that the more than 250,000 enslaved black people there were free by executive decree. It had taken more than two and a half years since the Emancipation Proclamation for freedom to reach the places where the Confederate Army was still in control. Reconstruction had begun. It was only last year that South Dakota declared Juneteenth an official state holiday. SDPB's Veda Tonneson reports this year there are Juneteenth celebrations and events scheduled in cities across the state. Many organizations in South Dakota are encouraging people of all cultures to come together as a community and celebrate this year's Juneteenth. Bennett Clary is the president of USD's Union of African American Students. They're helping to create a Juneteenth celebration in Vermilion. Clary says recognizing Juneteenth as a federal holiday is a symbol of support for the African American community. It shows that the larger American community does see us and that they do see our struggle and our fight to become free and they see it as a reason to celebrate, a reason to have time off of work to remember and celebrate and acknowledge what we've gone through and what we're still going through. Clary says people of all cultures should attend Juneteenth celebrations to gain a better understanding of history. While the significance of other national holidays like the 4th of July is well known, Juneteenth receives far less attention. On June 19, 1865, the last African-American people finally became free from slavery. The day became known as Juneteenth, and annual celebrations began. Donovan Washington is helping to plan Rapid City's Juneteenth event. He says while no one should forget the history of African-American suffering, it is critical to look at the triumphs. A lot of our history at least in the Black community, has been kind of saturated with trauma. And although that is a reality, that there's also a myriad of success stories. There's a myriad of positivity in our story as well. And those are the things that is important to highlight as well. By celebrating this milestone, Washington hopes people can begin to rewrite the narrative and become proud of their unique background and perspective. Our nation's racial history has become a flashpoint in our culture wars. Some states have passed legislation that restricts what educators teach to avoid focusing on the legacy of slavery. Those lawmakers say acknowledging our racial history creates unnecessary guilt for students. Aliyah Jackson is the president of USD's Cultural Wellness Coalition and a contributor to Vermilion's Juneteenth event. She sees Juneteenth as a day to learn and understand. Our whole thing is that the celebration is not heavy. It's not guilting anybody. It's a good thing. Yes, it's unfortunate circumstances that, you know, history went through all this and whatnot, but we want this. It's, it's a good thing. It's a day of celebration. While Juneteenth commemorates African-American freedom, many involved in organizing events say all cultures are free to recognize the holiday. Naima Tossing is the chair of the Brookings Human Rights Commission and a coordinator for the Brookings Juneteenth celebration. She says Juneteenth is an opportunity to spread awareness. And why not, uh, why not include everybody in a joyful celebration? Because it is something to be joyful about. It happened, and uh, we are working towards the 
actual living of the freedom that has been promised. Many event organizers say one way to respectfully participate in Juneteenth is to be willing to learn. Harriet Yoakum is a Juneteenth board member for the Sioux Falls celebration. She says commemorating the holiday as a community provides an opportunity for people of all cultures to foster understanding for each other by acknowledging history together. So you're not overstepping, you are actually educating yourself and celebrating the unity of freedom among all of our communities. Naima Tossing shares this sentiment. She encourages everyone to stay curious and expose themselves to events like Juneteenth, since its history affects everyone. Because if I'm not free, neither are you. Juneteenth celebrations will take place across the state over the weekend and on Monday the 19th. I'm SDPB's Veda Tonneson. And that is our show today. We hope that it served you. Tune in Monday for Juneteenth, Remembrance and Celebration. It's a special that uses music from Black American composers to highlight progress and pain held in the community at large. The special will face our country's racist past and present in a tapestry of sounds somber to ecstatic. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening.